Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much for coming to this HC Insider live podcast event, celebrating the, uh, celebrating the, book, the launch of, of Addy's book, Brent Crude Oil, the genesis and development of the world's most important benchmark. So we're going to have a 40-minute panel or so, followed by with the mic on, recording a podcast, and then the mic goes off and we'll do a Q&A. Um, my name is Paul Chapman. I'm the host of the HC Insider podcast and managing partner of HC Group, which is a search and talent advisory firm focused in the energy and commodities sector. I'd like to welcome our panel, all contributors to the book, Kurt Chapman on the board of Zenith a midstream company with assets in, in Asia, sorry, in Europe and North America. Paul Horsnell, Global Head of Commodities Research for Standard Chartered. And Colin Bryce, founder and partner of Energex, a boutique management consultancy, again, in commodities. And of course, Addy himself. So thanks all for coming and we'll, we'll get started. So, I mean, let's start with the book, Addy. Why this book and why now? Thank you, Paul. Thank you for organizing all this. Uh, it's fantastic turnouts as well. Um, I really appreciate everyone here. You know, this is a kind of book that I think most of the audience will actually understand had to be written. It just had to be written because uh, um, we went back to uh, when I wrote my first book on the uh, trading and price discovery crude oil. I interviewed quite a few people uh, in this room and uh, it turned out that there's so many interesting stories about the sort of uh, sort of social an economic history of, of the rain market that hasn't been told. Of course, um, Paul Horsnell wrote the um, the rain book on the rent market, but it, it was a, it was about how the rent market worked, and it was not. I think what was left unsaid was who did what and how and why. So the idea came out after my my first book, and, and then I, I, I spoke to uh, Colin Bryce, spoke to Liz Bosley, um, and they thought. You know, it was a really good idea to write something about how it all happened. Then, then I went to Kurt Chapman as well, and then we, we were doing some stuff together at the Oxford Energy Institute. Uh, Kurt wrote a really good piece uh, about legacy of Brent. So I suggested that he turn that legacy of Brent um, uh, piece into a chapter, and, and he agreed. And then and it was just like a snowball effect. He went on and on and on. You know, in fact, at the end, there were far more people we could fit in. Um, but with the, the 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 key was that we meet the deadline. The deadline was to meet the new introduction of WTI into Brent, which I think is a seminal um, moment for the Brent market. Uh, and that deadline was roughly what? Let's not call it. Let's call it June the first today. But it was actually about a month ago. So um, that was the idea. We were a little bit limited by the word count to, to get that there very quickly, and that, that that's why the book is so small. But the, the, the re- it was actually the hardest part was to actually get, you know, all the authors to, to actually cut down what they were writing because the wealth of knowledge, the wealth of information is just absolutely fantastic. And I, and I, and I hope everyone reads it and enjoy it. Fantastic. Available on Amazon and all good book retailers, as we said. Um, okay, so, so maybe we could start. The conversation we're having today is about somewhat the past of Brent, but there is a seminal, seminal moment of WTI joining it, the context of that, and then also talking about some of the future of Brent. I, maybe, Paul, you can start set the scene for us, because what's fascinating is Brent is it's not just pricing crude in the Atlantic Basin. It has huge ramifications for the global energy world and, and all of us in our back pockets. So can you give us some sense of the importance of Brent 
as a benchmark and then a little bit of the history of how it, how it started. Yeah, so now I think you can look at the world oil market as, as a sort of enormous great inverted pyramid and that uh, down at the sharp end, we've got really Brent. So that's sort of really, really the only way of um, uh, establishing kind of, some kind of price level. And everything else is just balanced on top of that through these various types of uh, Brent markets, uh, forward futures, partial CFDs, data Brent, a whole section of uh, separate markets. Then going on to really Brent being used um, as an alternative to um, having other market crudes uh, being used by the major producers as being their uh, index crude, a reference crude. At each level as we go up, the volume of oil involved is getting larger and larger, right the way through to Brent being used to even price other fuels. It's used in uh, LNG contracts. It's used in um, all, all other forms of energy. And you look through that sort of inverted pyramid and think, okay, that's a bit peculiar. And then you look at, well, look at the exact details of it. It starts looking even more peculiar. You suddenly then left with the view that if you were designing a system to price energy in the world, probably wouldn't start with this one. It's not one that uh, is an, if you were some kind of uh, management consultant brought in from Venus without any knowledge of the, of the history, you're not going to design this. And it's completely barky mm-hmm. as, a, as a way of doing things. And I think what that tells us, it, it's a product of its own history. Mm-hmm. It, throughout its history, it's fulfilled separate needs. It's built on those needs. Uh, traders have got involved and it becomes, I won't call it a trader's playground, but it is um, it is certainly the result of um, the way in which traders have interacted with it. And over time, this influence has, has grown. So very quickly, just do the sort of brief potted history. If you take it right the way back to the beginning, it was a world of um, predominantly fixed prices called out by producers. Producers didn't, um, Saudi Arabia in particular didn't like that because it meant, them, meant that they had to be the swing producer because if you're calling out your uh, oil uh, price as a fixed price, then you have to change your quantity depending on how much demand crops up. It was really the birth of the North Sea market which um, gave the first set of players a reason for having a price. And that was as a taxation reference price. Uh, the UK government wanted to know what the value of this stuff was so that it could uh, get its tax yield. The, the companies wanted there to be a price there that uh, meant that they weren't paying too high a tax burden and that it was sort of fair in that sense. And so that initial Brent was there to fulfill that first need. We need a price. We need something which we can uh, re- relate to. Move on. Oh, there's a lot of other history and uh, uh, the panel will can, can finish some of the bits at, uh, as we go through as does Addy's uh, book in, in, um, in very clear detail, roll it on to 1986, 1987, the collapse of the fixed price system, Saudi Arabia's brief um, attempt to price all through net banks, you're then in a position where the producers don't want to call out the price anymore. They tried relating it to product prices, didn't like it. So let's try doing it on on key benchmarks of reference, and their Brent is straight in there, filling in the void. So suddenly it's pricing virtually all uh, um, uh, imports into, into Europe. It's a massively increased um, importance from its first step as a non-sea. Then over time, at each stage, every time there's another need, uh, it evolves, something else is built on top of this pyramid. So we end up with this thing, which is, let's face it, it's pretty ungainly. It doesn't look good. I mean, that's not perfect, but it's there in a sense because it's there. It's a product of its own history. It's a product of all these things going backwards. Mm. So that, in a nutshell, is essentially the history of Brent. It's 
something which really is very ungainly, but has served a purpose and uh, probably come back to this point. As long as we don't think too much about it being this highly unstable pyramid bounced on top, as long as the market's okay with that, then everything is fine, all these functions. The problem comes when we start worrying about it being a huge greater vertical pyramid. Yeah. And we'll come on to that. We'll come to Kurt as well on, on the, the people who understand that complexity can obviously benefit from, from trading it. Colin, before we get there, can you talk to us a bit about the people and the, the players, the participants in that history of Brevin? Certainly, and thank you for fresh uh, scanning me uh, into this, Abby. <laughs> told me it was going to be a Waterstone Windows book. <laughs> what kind of gets going into the Waterstone? And much as we, uh, we enjoy, uh, have enjoyed reading uh, each other's pieces. Um, so I um, tried to write a little bit about the sort of social history, if you like, and particularly the piece prior to the internet age, which, you know, uh, everything in the internet age is sitting in front of, as we all know it. Prior to that, it's, you know, in folks' memories. And, you know, sadly, a lot of folks who uh, have these things in their memories are either no longer with us or won't be with us for much longer. So it's, I think, important to document and uh, um, recognise some of that stuff. So uh, I focused a little bit on what I thought were the enabling factors in getting Brent to the position that it, that it uh, currently is at. And, you know, I think the, the, the popular conception is it got to where it is because um, the fiscal regime in the UK really suited um, backspinning and, you know, Mrs. Thatcher's government encouraged free trade and the legal system was very good and all these good things. My own sense is that while these were important, they were certainly not sufficient. And um, I've tried to explore a few different things, really. One is the structure of BNOC. And I think the way it would be, BNOC was created and disbanded. Just explain. The British National Oil Corporation, let's explain in, in the book. Um, the way in which that was structured and disbanded, I think, uh, played into the hands of traders and surplus and enabled trading to take place in this particular location. I think the influence of the location, place and the contiguity of place, um, when there was no um, technology like we have today, you couldn't talk to people on the telephone, you relied on meeting people, you know, and there was a, a locus, if you like, here I think was very important and the people themselves and the incentives that, uh, you know, came to be recognised, um, personal incentives as well as corporate incentives um, by the people. So people, place, structure, I think were also very important. And I joke about it being a Waterstones window, but actually I think it's a very important book because, you know, we're all intoxicated by oil and will continue, in my view, to be intoxicated by oil for good or good or ill, depends on your viewpoint. And so we really need to know the value of that. And the value of that is bread. That's how coin was valued. And so we need to understand that. And it's a complex um, process, more complex perhaps than it uh, currently was. Um, and so for that reason, I think it's, uh, it's a timely, timely book. It's a short book. It can be read easily. It's not too, uh, not too stuffy and academic. And uh, you know, I recommend it to everybody uh, to, to, to get a, a sense of uh, why we are where we are. Get it in water stands if we can. Um, so, Kurt, I mean, taking what Colin said, I mean, what's amazing is, and perhaps not widely, certainly known in this room, but not more broadly known, is how, in your opinion, how few people really understand the complexity of Brent, and and, and those are those key traders that ultimately end up setting that price. Can you talk to us a bit about kind of the community that trade, and then I guess how the hedges rely on them to that's the, what they bring to the party, right? Can you talk to that. I'm going to go slightly off piece to then come back around to your question. But, I, you know, there are quite a lot of people in the room to thank, uh, not only uh, 
the contributors who are here, but there's uh, four or five contributors in the audience. Uh, it's a, a collaborative effort. And I've always felt very strongly that uh, the greatest successes and the greatest satisfaction you get from those uh, interactions. And the industry is very uh, a very close community. Uh, and the industry is one that's also identified the fact that Brent is a very important part of it. And there's a lot of different characters and players in the market that want Brent to be successful. And that's why we've seen the evolution that we've seen uh, over the last 40 years. And so when you look at trying to be commercially successful in the Brent market, I think the first thing that stands out to me is you have to be adaptable, right? Because we've seen so many different machinations of Brent and particularly in uh, 2002 when Forties and Oseberg were added and this led us on a path of introducing other North Sea crudes as part of the Brent basket, when we know that there's only two or three Brent cargos a month that are produced. We've made a very giant leap forward uh, introducing WTI Midland, uh, but it's not irrational. It adds on to what we've seen before. I think the confusion and concern is you're introducing a crude oil from out the region, outside the region, which is not loaded at an FOB North Sea terminal. And you've added a freight element which has added another level of complexity uh, to a market that's already completely complex. But how do you be successful in a, com a complex market? Well, I think first you need to be a keen observer and you have to understand, you have to look at what's happening in the market and the way the oil flows have traded. And we've seen those oil flows change dramatically since the uh, Russian invasion and try to get some understanding of how the market attempts to balance itself. Secondly, I would say that you have to have some pretty strong technical skills. Uh, you gather that information in a relatively uh, relatively opaque market. It's becoming more transparent now because there's more financial tools. And you have to add some sort of science, uh, put some sort of quantitative analysis on top of what you're seeing, That you know what, what is occurring uh, in the market that you're seeing. And once you establish your thesis, you have to have the conviction to, to act on it. And in order to do that, you have to choose the right tools. You may be right about what you see as the arbitrage opportunity, the dislocation, the irrationality that you're trying to, to correct. But if you don't uh, exercise that in the right instrument, whether it's data to frontline, whether it's forward market, whether it's uh, EFS exchange of physical first swap, then you can't capture that opportunity. Uh, and you have to stand by that conviction. But we all know that the market is bigger than we are. And there are times you're wrong. And you have to have the humility to step up sometimes and say, hey, I'm not right about it. I think anybody who's a trader in the room will admit they've probably done some of their best trading when they were behind the eight ball when they were losing money and they needed to dig themselves out of a hole. So, uh, but it's fair to say that level of complexity is actually, I mean, the point being is understood by very, by a small cadre of individuals who are actively trading this. And yet the benchmark is so important to many economies around the world, to hedging, all these things as well. Right? It's, 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 I just want to sort of emphasize this point that it's just, a tiny group of people who are who understand those intricacies and that's their competitive edge in being able to trade it. Yes, it is. And it's it's a little bit like a forensic science. And you need to and you need to be able to delve deep and understand all the different complex elements about it. But all the instruments that have been created in the whole bright complex 
have some use to somebody who's participated in it, whether it's the forward market initially for tax bidding, uh, whether it's uh, the CFD market in order to link uh, the dated and the forward market where you were hedging to, to eliminate basis risk, all those, all those levels of complexity, there's somebody that's involved in as a trader trying to push the envelope, trying to in some ways break it at times, you want to understand how those different instruments fit together mm. and create the whole. For most people, though, Kurt, I think it's isn't it important to recognize that 95% of folks don't really understand what goes into this. The 5% of people who do understand it fair and, fair and well, they'll, they'll do, do very nicely arbitraging it. That's great. But for the, for the rest of the folks, it's just a brand. It uh, doesn't really matter what's in it. You could put the price of garden peas in the formula, and, it, and as long as the Financial Times published it, people would still price off it. I mean, it's, it's the brand, I think, that, uh, to my mind, has really... Um, the thing that's, if you like, saved Brent from its complexity, you know, and, and will continue to, in my view. No, I agree, I agree, Colin, because I think, you know, again, there's a lot of different players that have an interest in in, in Brent being successful for their own particular uh, and oftentimes selfish, selfish reasons. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Moving the story along to the inclusion of WTO, why did Brent need saving? What's been going on that meant that actually this was a, a necessary inclusion? The perennial problem of, of most of these benchmarks is the volume started coming off and uh, production in the normal sea started coming off and uh, introduction of new grades, expanding the window and so on without getting too technical here. It's basically still kept it going, but the, the volumes are coming off. As, as we know, you know, very little investment is going to North Sea oil and, and we're getting less and less crude. So outside probably Norway. So the idea was to introduce a new grade um, and there are pretty much um, two options open. But before I get to the options, I think it's important to, to understand sort of the framework within which we had to operate. The, the idea is, I remember in my last job, Paul, we hedged LNG 15 years forward. We didn't hedge it 15 years forward because we couldn't, but we'd hedge it five, six, seven years forward and then roll the hedges and so on. So the idea that if, if you can imagine, there are people out there with massive positions of futures and dated Brent at least five years forward. We're talking about tens of millions of barrels. Now, if you were to just say like, okay, well, Brent is no more and let's get rid of it. Well, what happens then? You know, well, what happens then? You know, it's, all these positions would have to be renegotiated, not just the derivatives markets, but you're talking about the physical markets as well have to be renegotiated. So, so the industry had a very, very strong incentive to come up with something. Now, it's not an easy solution because, well, there's no easy solution because the, the, the framework within which the industry had to operate was something that would not significantly change the curves because price reporting agencies are supposed to reflect the market, not influence the market. So the, a, some solution had to be found. So two solutions were to cut the long story short, Johannes Werder or Brent. Johannes Werder 
interesting, very viable option, a lot of crude, very, very different quality, completely different quality. It's sour, very sour and very heavy. So if you bought a, you know, API sour and, 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 uh, there's the density of the crude, it really sticks out like sore thumb among all the other crudes. The, the more important, in my opinion, the more important point, and Kurt and I kicked it around for quite a while, was 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 the fact that, you know, Equinor still con- controls Ozerberg, he controls Troll, he controls Equifisk, and if you add another big grade, they pretty much control the whole rent market because Brent is no more, pretty much. There's only 40s left. So I think that market concentration was a big problem as well. And there are other issues. I don't want to get into that. sort of be a lot of, uh, um, in Johan's word of, it was exported in the past prior to the war and so on. So the, the idea is how to solve the problem. And, and we went back and I think we're talking about um, my first paper on the idea of introducing WTI was in 2019, but the idea went back at least two years before. So it, it seems like the obvious viable option because WTI would come into Europe as a base slate, uh, very much for many refiners. Uh, it would compete with Ecofisk. And it was pretty much, you know, and, and, and one thing that opened my eyes was a discussion with, with, with a friend of mine way back, probably 2016, um, he worked for Oxy, David Covey, a really good colleague. And, and, you know, we were talking about this at one breakfast meeting. And so like, well, you know, we're exporting this stuff as soon as it hits the water is Brent. And I'm thinking like, oh, you know, TI, Midland, hits the water, becomes a brand. How does that work? So it kind of, there's an obvious connection to it. Mm. And finally, in writing my, my, my first book, I realized that actually NYMEX pioneered that already in, in 86, I think it was, when, when, when the market collapsed and there was a shortage of crude, they, they reversed the seaway pipeline. Uh, domestic refiners started buying imported oil, and Brent became part of WTI. So if Brent can be part of WTI, why can't okay. WTI be part of Brent? It is quite propitious timing, isn't it? I mean, do you, Paul, in terms of, A, obviously the U.S. actually exporting stuff, which makes it possible in the first case, but also geopolitical events that are going on at the moment. You know, obviously Russia's invasion in Ukraine has dramatically changed the oil flows, which... You know, in terms of timing, it's worked pretty well for WTI's inclusion in Brent. Can you talk to us about that? And and also add in this element of freight that's going to be important to uh, the extra extra complexity. Yeah, no, I I'm mean, I, I going back to my sort of ridiculous looking inverted pyramid. And again, sort of point in there is that you're for that to work, you've got not to worry about what's going on at the bottom. You've got everybody right. who's using that to the very top has got to maintain their belief that there is a value here that's grounded in some physical oil, and there is a value being uh, generated. Now, to lose confidence in a market is, uh, you know, that's when it all falls away, and that can happen for all kinds of things. Governments can do that. It can happen to people worrying about anything that breaks that relationship between what's there at the bottom and, quote, the, the, the fair value of oil. Now, one of those things is, oh, there isn't enough of it. The market might get squeezed. Not, it's not necessarily fatal. I mean, I, um, there was uh, the market for Alaska North Slope, which was used as the main marker into the US. And it wasn't just the market for Alaska North Slope. It was very particularly delivered into the Gulf Coast. So to do that, you would load up in Alaska. You'd go all the way down to Panama, put it onto a pipeline, go across Panama, then put it onto a, a smaller uh, tanker, and then bring it into the Gulf Coast. Now, that was economic for not very long, if truth be known, and for too long, it just completely disappeared. And yet, for, what, two years, 
Um, that ANS price still was being used as a marker. Nobody worried about it too much, even though the fiscal base was zero. And in fact, in some ways, it was easier to do a price when there was none because you had none of these messy actual trades to deal with. You, the reporters could just phone up in the morning and say, well, if there was any ANS coming into the Gulf Coast today, what do you think it would be worth? So, oh, I think it's probably, you know, don't do 130 or 40. And very easy to come up with a price. And again, it was only a problem when somebody started thinking about it, thinking, hang on, you know, that's odd. Is, is that a value now that's still based in value oil? So you can go down to zero before you know, that question is raised, so the question on Brent, I think this is more precaution. I don't think we were at the point yet where there'd been a major loss of confidence. This was sort of getting to a point of saying, okay, well, what's next? And it was almost you know, added Ninian into Brent in 1990, and then in, then went into the um, BFOE, and you know, gradually been adding lots and lots of different molecules. And each time, it's probably got a little bit easier to sort of take on that absurdity. Now, people initially were very worried when. Ninium was blended in in sort of 1990. People saying, well, you know, I bought Brent, but I'm actually getting molecules that have come out of the Ninium field. You know, that, that, but once you go over that, then it gets harder, it gets easier and easier. And I think this, you could put this as like a final absurdity. Again, going back to my Venusian, no way would you design this thing with a freight element and WTI being priced in Rotterdam and so on. But if it's what it um, takes so that that existential question, I, is this a fair value, does it mean something? As long as it stops that question being asked, then the whole thing so, sort of runs through. The only difference here is perhaps who's asking that question first. It used to be the major oil companies and gradually over time it's sort of evolved, but it's still that. Uh, sort of a way through. I mean, if you like, it's, it's the bumblebee theory, Brent. You know, and the bumblebee theory, Brent, is that um, you know, from an aeronautics physics point of view, it's actually very difficult to work out how bumblebees actually fly. Now, they're round and they've got this sort of furry stuff around and the power to the thrust ratios don't seem to be right. So they haven't got enough of wing area. Technically, bumblebees don't fly. And the main theory as to why bumblebees fly is, well, nobody's actually told the bumblebees yet. And no bumblebees ask the question, say, can we technically, can we fly? That's the same sort of thing in the Brent market. As long as there's nobody in that pyramid saying, hey, does this work? Have you might, oh is that value at the bottom a fair value? As long as that question isn't asked, it's fine. As long as if that question is asked, then the whole thing falls away no matter how big the volume is. Yeah, I don't want the podcast being responsible. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they, you know, that question should be. Asked. Yeah, of course it can. I don't um, think so. I, 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 he's clearly the intellectual. But uh, uh, <laughs> to make a comment on, on, on Brent and Brent trading, I mean, you know, a lot of people here are part of the industry and they get, uh, they get you know, kind of intricately involved in, in how it's set and, you know, moving of the physical barrels that, are, that, that accomplish that. But the contract, the, the futures contract, is massive and it's not being traded by the industry. It's being traded by this huge macro fund community and speculative community who want to have some sort of skin in the game on what they consider to be a global benchmark. 
And essentially, the connection of WTI, particularly WTI Midland into Brent, gives you that global market. We all saw in 2020 when WTI Cushing went negative, and it went negative for, we, we don't have to get into the reasons for it. There were some technicalities and open interest issues and what have you. But if you really want to express a macro global view on world GDP and what have you, then the Brent market is something, it is a place that you would go. And this has strengthened it by adding WTI to make it more of a realistic price for yeah. the, the global benchmarks, but just become more global. Mm. Yeah, the US is the largest exporter of crude oil. Colin? No, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm training for my private pilot's license at the moment. I need to talk to Paul afterwards about this bumblebee thrust, <laughs> I think, because uh, that's that's the most interesting thing you've said so far. <laughs> Thank you. I want to get it. I want to get it. So, I, I have a question. Stay up to the horse. Sorry, I, I have a question for Kirk, actually, because you, you pointed out there that uh, the underlying, you know, the futures is traded by this mass of, um, you know, algos and, uh, and spectators and whatnot. So, one of the things that, to my mind, would cause the demise of Brent, as we know it, is if the conversion between the futures and the physical non-convergence, yeah. if it was threatened. But, you know, if you're saying that the majority of folks trading the underlying futures are not really caring about that because they're just caring about having something to trade, then maybe convergence doesn't matter too much. Is that a reasonable point or, or no? I think it was a big debate in the development of, uh, uh, you know, of, of the new new Brent contract because I think overwhelmingly the industry wanted WTI to be a part of dated. The question was, did they really want WTI to be a part of the forward market? Mm. And we all all realized that, uh, you know, if you have you, you exercise uh, a, a position in the forward market, you hold on to it, you get a dated cargo. And it's the forward market that underpins the futures market. Uh, and, and, you know, ultimately, um, uh, the PRAs went with a system whereby, uh, with industry consul consultation, to be fair, uh, went with a system whereby the, the forward WTI is, is, is part of the mix. And I think that's important so you don't get too much divergence. Now, with all the complexities of parade and everything else, you can do that. And there may need to be additional adjusting measures that occur, just like we had uh, when Buzzard went into 40s, you had a de uh, sulfur de-escalator, just like uh, when Echo, Fisk, and Ozenberg were found to not pricing dated very often, uh, quality premiums were introduced. Uh, you know, freight factors are introduced now, and, you know, they may need to be adjusted accordingly. Uh, but we're, we'll, we have to see the data. So far... I'm not. I could be. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think there's been at least 22, 23 cargos of uh, Midland forward in the Jude contract. Just before you comment, so just so I guess for listeners as well, this this idea that essentially that the forward markets at the point of their maturity must meet the cash markets, and if they don't, that cast starts causing some significant problems, right? And the the comment here is that like the ags market ten years ago, which turned out to be a bit of an issue around storage. You've added this freight element to the contract that could be, there's an element of risk there or concern about whether this non-convergence, which is a big issue, I don't understand it myself, but I'm just regurgitating words, you know, could, could come about, right? Is that fair? No, absolutely. I just want to make a quick comment on what Paul was saying about the Pumblebee. I think it's great. Uh, all I can say is that, you know, through my sort of uh, experience of training, you know, the Pumblebee has been tested quite a few times. And I work with Kurt, and he's tested to the limit. I can tell you that. 
Um, so the bumblebee's been, been tested very well and it's flying. The question is now whether obviously WTI inclusion in that sort of bumblebee theory, you know, how that pans out. And, and yeah, we, we, we talk, do talk about it and we have concerns about it with, you know, freight being, you know, Aframax undated uh, and W, sorry, VLCC being put undated, but not on, on forward and so on. But the, the bottom line is that, you know, this is a contract that is evolving and will evolve and it will succeed if the industry wants it to succeed and it's up to the industry to step up and say okay well let's change this let's change that if you think about it suco gtncs were introduced in 1990 what happened between late 70s and 1990 well it, it was it was a wild west but it worked you know it will gradually we, we we don't we can't have all the answers right now but i i you know i'm i'm very comfortable that so far it looks very good Brent will find a way. I mean, can you guys comment on that? Like the, in our discussion before this, sort of the, the refrain was, this is so crucial to not only the energy markets, but the world economy, that they're not going to allow this thing to tip over. Oh, it's a brand, and uh, I think uh, as long as the brand is polished sufficiently, um, you know, at least in my mind anyway, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll continue on and, um, and thrive, and it, and it needs to, because as uh, Addy said, what, what, what would you replace it with? And mm-hmm. it's colossal uh, undertaking to, to think of you know, having to replace it with something else. Yeah, I think my only concern there is, again, going back to what I said, this, this is ugly. I mean, this is not a, this is being put together and just to make sure it does the job. No, it's not meant to be beautiful. It's not meant to be perfect. It is there to do the job. My concern is that, um, you know, the making it look beautiful becomes an aim. You know, so sort I of think, oh, look, it'd be a little bit better if we just that bit and do do that bit. And I think that that's the danger of over-fiddling with it from now. Mm-hmm. That really what you should be doing is saying, okay, this is fine. This is going to work for, you know, for, for foreseeable future. Walk away whistling. Hope nobody looks at the bodge job you've done on the pair uh, because that's the way it's worked all the years. It's always been a bodge. I mean, it, it will get tested, right? That oh, it will get that's tested. What, that's what the trading community does. They tested to the ultimate. And I know a few individuals in here who have done that. Uh, and all I would say, though, is that the industry is very self-regulating. We talk about regulation and we talk about uh, important benchmarks and Dodd Frank and all these other things, but. You know, the industry as a whole wants this to work, and they're the ones that will go around and call people out and say, you, you've taken it a, a step too far. I'm not saying that uh, the government will not be involved, and they will be involved, but the industry, I think, does a pretty good job. But there are other no, things. There should be minimum changes. You don't yes. want to cap it in a, a process of constant evolution and, you know, keep filling around. And the right balance. It has just got to be accepted for what it is, and as I said, walk away from the bumblebee for it starts yeah, thinking. There's a great quote that there we, we dragged up from Joe Rober yeah. back uh, in 1983, which I think, uh, I can't, maybe you can remember it because I think you it, uh, we can read it if you want. <laughs> Something like complexity and disorganization doesn't really matter at all unless one considers tidiness to be uh, critical to economic efficiency. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, one final the quote was better than that, but that, that, yeah. that's, that's the sentiment. And I, and I think it was, a, it was a killer quote for me that um, mm-hmm. tends to include one, one final question before we're going to do a, a Q&A quickly and then we can carry on with the, with the drinks next door. You also have a lot of more, I, mean, I don't know if this is a controversial question, but you've also got a lot more, you, you know, yes, the community wants it to work, but there's also now a lot more actors in the market, whether it's macro hedge one, all this, you know, and we've seen stuff with the LME, you know, there might, I'm, my, I'm leading up inarticulately to saying, 
This could also be construed as a material change, and you could see someone therefore use that to get out of their whatever situation they're in. Um, is that a possibility as well? We start seeing this tested in the courts, or is who wants to take that on? I'll take it if you want. I mean, I mean, it goes back to uh, I think that's the infamous case of uh, Transnor. Transnor happened. What uh, at least was it late eighties? Nineteen ninety was a court case, but it happened eighties. Yeah, exactly. I mean. You know, the, the point is, and, and, and Liz made this point several times, and I think it's an excellent point. I mean, my my, my personal opinion is that it, it this Transnor case happened when we had pretty much what we call now pure Brents, like Brent Linian. There was nothing else. And if it happened, basically, for those who don't understand what happened in Transnor case, there was this trading company based in Bermuda or somewhere. Transnor, they lost a lot of money trading 15-day Brent. And they basically, instead of paying up, they started suing other people for, and, and I think the key ones were BP, Carl Conoco, um, I think Shell, Exxon, whatever, for whatever manipulating the markets. And of course, uh, the judge in the U.S. court, federal court, said, oh, yeah, Brent is a part of the U.S. market or maybe even said futures market. Um, therefore, it was settled out of court. Bad news about settling out of court is that you don't know exactly you know, what, what it means. This, Yeah. So... Now you have this thing hanging over the whole Brent market that, and, and that's one of the one of the reasons I think, and Kurt and I talked about it. We we think one of the reasons why we had to move on to CIF, uh, WTI, apart from tax. But but it happened with Brent, what we call pure. If it happened with Brent pure, well, you know, I think this, it's probably only less chance that we happen when we have alternative delivery. So when you go to the court of law and you say, well, well, I, I was caught short. Well, you could have delivered Ecofisk, Troll, you could have delivered Olsenberg, you could have delivered WTI. So in my opinion, that's no, no, no argument. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, before we turn the mics off, I want to remind everyone to get their copy of uh, Brent Crude Oil, the genesis and development of the world's most important benchmark. And thank you guys so much for, for, for joining an interesting discussion. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.